Today's guests on My Climate Journey's startup series are Toby Kraus and Ben Parker, co-founders of Lightship, an all-electric RV. Their first model, the L1, is a tow trailer with a sizable solar array on top, electric heat pump HVAC, an induction stove in the kitchen, an 80-kilowatt-hour battery, and an EV range-extending or gas mileage-boosting feature, wherein the tow trailer provides some on-road power to the vehicle that's pulling it. Ben is a former mechanical design engineer from Tesla who worked on the Model 3, and Toby worked at Tesla in an earlier capacity, first in a finance function and then as a product manager on the Model S. Toby went on to an executive role at Proterra, the electric bus company, which recently filed for bankruptcy, but which has been a major factor in the large vehicle electrification space. The two of them joined forces to start Lightship in 2020 and unveiled the L1 for pre-orders in March 2023. In addition to their backgrounds and all about the L1's feature set, we talk about how they have sized the RV market, how they believe that the electrification of the RV will help drive the electrification of the pickup truck sector overall, and how the L1, with its built-in solar array and battery pack, can be a useful source of power to a home when it's not being utilized as an RV. MCJ Collective is proud to be a multi-time investor in Lightship via our venture capital funds, and I still learned a lot during this conversation. I hope you do too. But before we dive in... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Ben, Toby, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks, Ben. Boy, you guys have, I think, no offense to any other company who's listening to this, but you might have the sexiest website I've ever seen of a climate tech startup. Um, and so with that, kudos to you. And I am excited to jump in and for all of us, including myself, to learn more about the future of electrification as it relates to RVs, which if you pulled an average person on the street and said, name your favorite climate solution, they probably wouldn't throw out electric RVs at the top of the list. You guys are doing it. So we're going to dive into all that and what it means. But let's start with your backgrounds. You guys both have incredibly interesting and relevant backgrounds for this space. And Ben, let's start with you. Talk through you know, what you were working on that ultimately got you to the point of wanting to go down this path. Yeah, we do uh, both love EVs, as you probably hear. I'm trained in practice as an, as an engineer for a number of years. My main job in the industry was I, I worked as a battery engineer at Tesla for about five years. I was there 2015 to 2020. You'll hear from both of us that Tesla is one of the threads that activated Lightship's story and also brought me and Toby together, although we were somewhat different generations of Tesla's growth. I was there basically from the early days of the Model 3 and through the whole ramp of the Model 3 program. It was a crazy job. It involved living out of a suitcase in casino hotels in Reno, Nevada for the better part of two and a half years as we were trying to, to ramp that first gigafactory and get through what became known kind of historically as production hell. It was hell on Sundays. And once the Model 3 was in stable volume production and Tesla was somewhat out of the fire, 
I worked for a little bit of time in Germany on a, an automated battery manufacturing line. Before we even go there, I mean, just to acknowledge, I personally feel like the Tesla Model 3 is probably the most consequential technology launch of the last decade. You could maybe argue the iPhone was the consequential technology launch of the 2000s. One could say the Model 3 might be the thing over the last 10 years that truly transformed society or set us on a path toward transforming it. We're pretty biased. Toby has a Model Y, I have a Model 3, so we're really biased. But I do remember before the Model 3 was in volume production, it was when we were just starting production. I remember another person on the battery engineering team who started a great climate company himself, his name is Rich, saying, just commenting to the group that the Model 3 was really kind of like a product ahead of its time. He already believed that it was, it was going to make a big difference. And once you started to see them on the road, and now five years on, just I live in the Bay Area, they litter the Bay Area, they're everywhere. It's pretty amazing what's happened from it. And I think that was part of Toby's my thinking too back then was you could tell pretty early on what a special product it was going to be that the third major generation of Tesla's cars and, and what it was going to mean for the idea of a mass market EV. You could tell that electrification was happening and it was going to happen fast in passenger cars. And that, that was what was spurring him and Neil that we'd, we'd not met at that point to think each of us to think ourselves about what the next wave of electrification was going to look like in ground transportation. And that was where both of us wanted to be and wanted to have an impact. And where Lightship then came from was once I was off of the Model 3, I came back to California to Tesla's headquarters in Palo Alto. I was working on the next generation battery design, which is now I think what's going into the Cybertruck and, and everything produced out of the Austin now fourth gigafactory. That was my day job. And then I picked up kind of a pet project first over lunches and then in all, a lot of my free time. And the, the idea was to electrify all the food trucks in the Bay Area because there's a rotating circuit of really great food trucks that come to Tesla's headquarters. Their pitfall, and what, what was so annoying to me is that they all run these generators, usually great pain or gas generators. Oh, yeah. You, if you stand in the wrong place when you're ordering food and you're out, you're by the vent out of those generators, that air is hot and smelly and awful. Yeah, totally. And even when they put the exhaust on the opposite side from the serving window, when they'd line two of them up side by side, now the, the generator from the truck next to the one you're ordering at is venting into the order window of the next. And I was just doing that day after day and getting great food and also having to deal with like yelling over these things, I got kind of fed up. And so I wanted to work on a way to, to turn them electric as well. And I was doing that for probably eight or nine months. And that was where kind of naturally the, the idea of RVing came from was, you know, electric RVing in particular was that I would tell people about the food truck project that I was doing in, in my spare time. And then RVing would oftentimes come up in, in conversation because there are similar needs when you're trying to, to run all the appliances on board a vehicle, whether it's a food truck or an RV. And yeah, I started looking into it. You could, being surprised as we'll get into it by just how popular and sort of impactful RVing is to, really to the landscape of American life. And then where things really got catalyzed and kicked into gear was that COVID came. We all, all got locked down that first March of 2020. And so I was cooped up back in my apartment in San Francisco. And it felt like a moment to, you know, to make a decision to go work on this. I ended up found a family RV rental business in Antioch, California. I got a good rate from them because I called them like a week before RVing just blew up in popularity that, that whole summer, as everybody realized, it was a great way to, to isolate at the start of the pandemic. So I rented this RV at a pretty good rate and took it out for about three months that whole, whole first summer and covered maybe 6,000 miles. I'd left Tesla right before I started the journey. It was amazing. I, I hadn't done a lot of RVing because I grew up on an island uh, on the East Coast and I lived one of the most expensive urban areas in the, in the country. Hard to find space to put an RV there, but both of us love road tripping in the outdoors and that feel at home there. 
I was out on the road and I was talking to a bunch of RVers and learning the lifestyle and starting to figure out what electrification would mean for, for the pastime too. Yeah, at that point, was really convinced that electrification was going to be really big in RVing. And so incorporated the company from the road and then came back to the Bay Area and started working on our just the battery system in our first prototype. And then it was within a few months of that, Toby and I got connected. This is now end of 2020 going into 21. And we actually got put in touch through Dorian West, who's our he was our very first ever investor. Toby and I both knew Dorian from Tesla because he was really longtime Tesla, had been there right from the beginning, had a big hand at building the battery engineering team from its origins and, and actually led engineering on the semi-truck program for a couple of years as well. And he and Toby and I all, all had overlap. And so, you know, I was looking for a co-founder. He said, have you talked to Toby Krause? And I said, no. And so then I, I looked up Toby and I gave him the pitch, not once, but a few times, as you'll hear. And uh, eventually we shook hands, first virtually and then, then in person a few weeks later and uh, started Lightship, the first American electric RV manufacturer. And now we're a couple of years into building it. And uh, I think some pretty cool stuff to show for it. Let's dive in then. And Toby, let's hear your side of the story. And Ben, one thing you didn't even mention was that I guess maybe it was while you were a student, but you were building like Formula One electric racing cars or something crazy like that, too. I am a diehard car nut, every angle of it. it my, my girlfriend is like, will you stop reading Car and Driver for the 12th time? Grew up loving cars, spent a ton of time in the auto shop as a kid growing up. We had, a, we had an auto shop in our high school, which was a lucky stroke for me. I basically chose where to go to college because there was a formula student racing team at that school. And I got a tour of that lab and saw the car and stuff like that. And I was like, yes, this is for me. And so ended up building these hybrid electric race cars for sort of like an open-wheeled formula-style single-seater race car. We were a group of a, a few dozen students, and we would build them on a two-year design cycle and then compete with them against other schools. And I ended up leading at the second half of my time in college, and it was, it was good. Not just leading, but winning the title for best electric car two times over and winning first place or something a few years later in, in a race. So I'm sure we could talk all about that, Ben, for sure. But uh, let's dive in and have Toby introduce himself, though you will be pleased to know that as part of our summer movie series as a family, we have been making our way through all of the Fast and the Furiouses. That's our summer evening relaxation, I guess. So, Toby, let's let's hear from you about your work. And gosh, from Tesla to Proterra, you've lived a bunch of the stories in electrification over the last 10 plus years now. You were at Tesla really early. Um well, first of all, I'm learning a few things about Ben that I didn't know. Namely, I knew he did formula racing. I didn't know that his team was good and winning things. <laughs> so no, I'm glad to hear it. My quick background, I wish I had half the engineering ability that Ben did. I, the joke at Lightship is I'm, a, I'm an engineer, comma, non-practicing. I majored in engineering in college and then quickly kind of left the trade. I was investment banker for the first couple of years of my career. This is during the last financial crisis, 2007 and 2009. I was working at Morgan Stanley in Manhattan. And it was an interesting time to, to be in finance. And as the sky is falling, for some reason, I thought it was a good idea to go work in automotive out of the frying pan and into the fire, I guess. Like only two of the top three largest vehicle OEMs in the United States had gone bankrupt at that point. I decided to go work at a startup car company. Fortunately, I was both naive and lucky and that, you know, that company was Tesla. And so I went there in 09. 09. How many people were at Tesla in 09? I think I was around probably 450 or something like that. I, yeah, I was basically hired as the first finance analyst to work on Tesla's IPO. I actually didn't even know it at the time, but that was what they brought me in to do. And like Ben, I had just an incredible experience at Tesla. I was there for six years. I led the finance team for a couple of years. I take issue with your comment that the Model S was you know, one of the most transformative products of the last decade. I would say I would take issue that the Model 3 
was one of the most transformative. The Model S, to me, was the most transformative because that was what I was working on during my generation. I can actually can see the Model 3 was more transformative. It was really like the first mass, mass market. I like the rivalry here. This is good. Hopefully, I don't create some co-founder angst and, and, and uh, you know problems. We're just fine. All of the trials and tribulations of starting a company will give us plenty of angst. We can agree the Model S and the Model 3 are both great cars. So yeah, I was yeah Tesla for six years, loved the financing for a few years. And then I yeah I was actually a product manager for the Model S, the big blackfish mouth Model S you see driving around from time to time still. And then, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I went over to Proterra back in 2016. Maybe describe Proterra for folks who haven't heard of it. So Proterra core product that they were building at the time was an electric transit bus, you know, like a, like a city bus. And, you know, at the time, it's crazy to say now, but honestly, like commercial vehicle electrification, electrification of big vehicles was not guaranteed, but like not really even being worked on. And Proterra at the time was pretty innovative because they were working on a transit vehicle and, and a transit vehicle was became really like the first early adopter market for electrification and commercial transportation. Proterra was and I think is still kind of the market leader in that segment. And I actually went over there. I followed my first boss from Tesla. His name is Ryan Popple, pretty awesome figure in you know, early climate tech um, investing and an awesome leader. He'd become Proterra's CEO. And I went to you know love the guy. I went to go work for him again. And my job was I ran what we call Proterra Powered. I actually really kind of like worked on starting and then leading Proterra Powered, which is Proterra's technology business, taking the technology they developed first for an electric transit bus and then really trying to commercialize it and sell it through a partnership model to any commercial vehicle manufacturer in the world that would buy it. And that, you know, that was awesome. We, we did a ton of you know, really cool early programs. Our main customer was Daimler, which as folks may know is the parent company of Mercedes-Benz. And then also on the heavy duty side, which is where, really where we were working, Freightliner trucks, and they're the largest commercial vehicle manufacturer in the world. So they have a million platforms that people know and many they don't. But we worked on, you know, an electric school bus, an electric delivery truck, an electric, you know, medium duty truck. And that was super cool. I was basically spending all my time thinking about the electrification of ground vehicles. That was maybe like the first little nugget that would sort of send me off on RVing through a little bit of roundabout path. So I left Proterra at the beginning of the pandemic. I actually didn't know what I was going to do. I All I knew was I wanted to actually move my family back to Colorado, where I'm speaking to you from. And the main motivation there was just honestly personal reasons. Like I daughter is two years old. I, we're struggling young parents trying to find help. I'm sure you can appreciate this, Cody, with young kids. We have family in Colorado. And so it's sort of a natural place for us to go. And I didn't quite know what my next step would be. And I ended up signing up to do what's called an EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence at a venture firm. And I'd never heard of that job before. It was basically, I was sitting around thinking about electrification and I was offered a job to get paid money to sit around and think about electrification. And I was like, yes, I'll do that. This is Eclipse, right? Major hardware investor. Yeah, this is an Eclipse. Worked closely with one of the partners there, Greg Reichow, another awesome Tesla guy. And it was funny, like, I love Team Eclipse, love the firm, but honestly, like, found out being the IR, I was like, that ain't me. If you know me, I'm a, I'm a very, like, pragmatic person. So the idea of like sitting around and ideating is just like, I just wanted to dive in and do something. And I wasn't going to give up though. So I cheated and I spent all my time networking. And as Ben mentioned, got connected to Ben through our very first pre-seed investor and Dorian, who Ben mentioned. And I suppose you could say the rest of the history, the, the reality is, and you know, this just gets into the kind of the origin of Lightship. When I first heard the pitch for Lightship from Ben, I was like super skeptical putting on my hat at Proterra, like spent all my time thinking about electrification of different types of vehicles and how big the markets were and what the willingness to pay and the TCO and you know, like all of this stuff. I just totally overlooked RVs. I thought it was like a small market and 
and I didn't really understand like the product topology. And what Ben knew then and I know now is it's a massive industry. So it's a part of Americana. One in 10 American families owns an RV. It's like half a million vehicles sold in a year. And to put that in context, in vehicle worlds, there's light duty cars and trucks. That's king. It's 12, 14 million vehicles sold every year in the United States. And then all these other vehicle categories that attract a lot of attention, a lot of venture capital dollars, even the big ones like class A trucks or something like that, low hundreds of thousands of units in the United States. And so for there to be this like half a million vehicle category that was nobody was working on it, also absolutely critical to the like the overall success of electrification, particularly if you think about the electrification of the pickup truck, which by the way is the number one selling vehicle in the United States in terms of personal vehicles, and it's not even close. That was really compelling to me. Let's go there then. One one of you, whoever wants to do it, break down the RV landscape. Just for those of us who aren't one of the one in 10 Americans who own an RV. I think of there's tow trailers, there's motor homes, like RV feels like the broad category that has a couple different segments underneath it. Maybe explain what that looks like today. And then also where the problems are with this category today from an emissions perspective and an energy and power usage perspective. So yeah, the market's really interesting. And, and honestly, this is sort of like why I missed it. If you look at the industry, RVing, honestly, even starting with the word RV, this is sort of like kind of an ongoing forever debate we have at our company. Like, what do you call the product? Is it an RV? Is it a camper? Is it a towable trailer? And when I hear RV, I think Winnebago. That's the thing that pops to my mind. And you are not alone. Actually, I think of Cousin Eddie in Christmas Vacation is like what I immediately think of, which is totally awful. But I love Cousin Eddie. So, you know, that's the site that comes to mind for me. We get that. You get like Walter White from Breaking Bad. When you say RV, they think of what the industry actually calls a motorhome or a motor coach, which is a drivable RV. The overall category RV includes both drivable RVs and towable RVs. Towable RVs are something you're going to pull behind a truck or an SUV. And so when I first thought about RVs, I thought about what the industry calls a motorhome. And it turns out like that actually is a very small part of the market. It is about 50,000 vehicles or so sold in the United States. Definitely gets a lot of attention, you know, particularly like with the popularity of vans and, and van life these days. But that is the smallest fraction of the market. It is the 10% and the 90%. That includes like the sprinter van phenomenon and all of that as well. Yeah, that whole category is 50,000 and the like sprinter van category is like five to 10,000. The really big nugget and the problem to solve is the towable segment. So think more like Airstream, a lot of people are familiar with, not like a sprinter van. And so that was something that really clicked for me. And the other part about it, and Ben can get more into this, it also is segment of the market that really is ready for electrification. And that was really important for us as we were getting started. Just because you're not having to power the full drivetrain, you're more powering the use of it as an actual place where you spend the night and live and make food and this, that, and the other. Is that correct? It's multiple things. And by the way, I'm I'm laughing at the Breaking Bad reference because we're a company that kind of loves whimsy and Walter White has literally shown up on our board slides before. You're going to have to fly an underwear flag out the window of the L1 as you go, I think. (laughs) Cody, don't tempt me. (laughs) Because I will. It's interesting because it's, yes, it's what you're saying. That's part of the reason why towable RVs are ready to electrify, where that may not be the case for these larger motorhomes. It is partly that, yeah, it only needs to sort of aid its propulsion. It doesn't need to do all of the work of moving itself. I think even bigger, though, is that when you think about a towable RV, it's a trailer gets pulled behind a truck. You'd have a hitch coming off of the, the rear bumper of the truck, whether it's a pickup truck or a big, a big SUV, like an Expedition or something like that, a Tahoe. You even have the big ones that like sit 
with with like part of it in the trailer, right? In the bed. In the bed. That's the word I'm looking for. They call those gooseneck trailers or fifth wheel trailers. Also a big segment of the market. Although interestingly, if we say okay, RVs are ninety percent towable, so let's say four hundred fifty thousand units. Something like twenty percent of all the RVs are those gooseneck style trailers, the big fifth wheels. The vast majority of them, like over two thirds of all RVs sold, all of the half million sold are conventional trailers, which they call bumper pull trailers. So that's something like a Jayco or an Airstream or any any of those sort of classic trailers that we're used to seeing. What's so interesting from, from an electrification standpoint or and really kind of like a product design standpoint as well is that those trailers, it's not legal to ride in a trailer as you are pulling it down the, the road. It's not crash safe and all those sorts of things so that the occupants are always sitting in the truck while you're in motion. And what that means is that you can design the body of the trailer to be very efficient as it moves down the road. Most trailers are sort of like a full height brick. They have a bunch of drag. Yeah, you're pulling a sail behind you. And so you get a lot of aerodynamic drag in particular from that. And that arrow is a really key element of the efficiency that an electric vehicle demands so you can have a small enough battery on board and still get a long range. And so with a trailer, you can sort of rethink the body. And that's sort of what we did from the start to be more of a collapsible design so that in the case of our first product, which we call the L1, we say that it has a road mode and a camping mode. And when it's in the road mode, Save it. Save it. Wait, wait, I don't want you to spoil that. We're going to come to that. We're going to describe all about the L1 because that part is super cool. Let's do it. Everyone stay tuned on that. Suffice it to say that when the L1 is in the road mode, it is a collapsed shape. And when you can reduce the frontal area of the vehicle and make it into sort of like a bullet-like shape, then you can get, get really great passive efficiency out of the vehicle, which you can't necessarily say for something like a, a converted bus or something like that, where if you're inside it, it's always going to be this big full height thing. And so it's always going to be pushing a lot of air and thus not be very efficient. So that was our approach was to first be really passively efficient. Then you can put a relatively small powertrain on board. So think an EV battery and a motor. So the trailer actually self propels. And the, the reason that you have to take that approach of going ground up with a redesign of the trailer is because if you were to just throw batteries and a motor at a conventional trailer design, the size of the battery and the weight of the battery that would be required to get, let's say, a full 300 miles of range would be too great. You can't make a great consumer product in that way. If I understand correctly, the trailers themselves still have some degree of propulsion to them. They're not just purely towed. Am I hearing you correctly there? Ours and uniquely ours. Most trailers conventionally have always been dead weight. It's just a brick that you pull behind your car. So yours actually has an aerodynamic footprint to it and it's actually presumably helping the vehicle that is pulling it move forward down the road to some degree. So if you are driving a future EV truck uh, like the Cybertruck, once it comes out, you're reducing the load on the battery of the truck. But even if you're driving a gas or diesel truck today, you're helping to create greater fuel efficiency. You nailed it. We say it's a self-propelling or a range assisting design through a combination of great passive efficiency and putting a driveline on board, you can basically be the unlock for electric RVing because the, the you know the state of the art is if you get one of these new EV trucks like Ford F-150 Lightning or the Cybertruck or the Rivian, or there's a whole bunch that are coming out now, you know, biggest vehicle segment in America is going electric and it's really exciting, but they all kind of have an Achilles heel, which is towing range. And really it's because they're trying to pull a, a big brick of a load, like a travel trailer behind them. But if you first make the trailer efficient and put a propulsion system on board, now you can get back to effectively zero range loss 
for those EV trucks. And that becomes an unlock for the electrification of the pickup truck, because what people want to do with pickup trucks is truck stuff. They want to haul things and pull things. And so you, you sort of must redesign the RV to enable electrification of that segment. Hey, everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly Women in Climate meetups, Idea Jam sessions for early-stage founders, Climate Book Club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. Super interesting that I didn't have as much context on in terms of your strategy. And then at the time when it's stationary, a trailer also is using fossil fuels for heating, cooling, cooking, etc. Maybe share a little bit more about the legacy state, what fuels are used, what they're used for, and how you all thought about approaching that side of things too. Back to the generator routes here. It's sort of a the way that you run a camper today, the home side of the camper is through honestly, kind of a hodgepodge of fossil fuels, fuel systems, you'll have typically a generator, which is run either off of propane or gasoline or occasionally diesel. That's what's providing electrical power to run the the electric appliances on board. Sometimes it doesn't even have enough power capacity to run something like the air conditioner, in which case, so with many RVs, you can only run the air conditioner if you are plugged into the grid, like at at a campground that would support it. Separate from that, There's a propane system, so typically you have propane cans on the tongue of the trailer, and that propane is used for sort of all of your cooking. It's used to heat the inside of the cabin. There are, of course, safety systems on top of that to make sure that you don't, you know, you don't accidentally build up carbon monoxide inside of the vehicle, and unfortunately, you can poison yourself with a propane system. And then separate from that, there's a battery system as well, but it's an old-style 12-volt car battery, like a lead-acid battery, and it's fraught. Toby and I have had our furnace blower motor fail multiple times on us overnight and leave us out in the cold. So you can sort of go from that hodgepodge of different fossil fuel systems to a, you know, a single fuel source, which is clean and is all electric. And if you can do that, you turn an experience that's kind of involved, frankly, from a power standpoint, if you're anywhere off grid, which is what RVing is about and what RVers like, like to do, to one that feels in a lot of ways more like a vacation home. Like in, in your vacation home, you go and you flip, you flip the breaker. Now all the lights are on again, similar to our products where you, you go and you turn it on. And now everything's just live. The entire roof of the vehicle is solar integrated as well. So you you can fit a pretty large solar array up there. And that big solar array is enough to continuously provide energy to support your camping experience as you're running the appliances. One other comment on that. This is something that Ben and I are super enthusiastic about. I think it's super important when it comes to like consumer climate tech. It also relates to your comment about our website. Thanks, by the way, like we're super proud of it. When you think about like consumer climate, something that I always appreciated about Tesla and, and I think the reason Tesla was able to be successful is they made a better product. You know, it was game changing. And, you know, your commentary on the Model 3, like 
you can almost forget that it's electric and it's just an incredible product. It's one of the best products of the last decade. And the reason Tesla was able to be so successful was that. And the climate really like kind of came along for free. And so when you look at the RV market, this, this is something that we focused on. Like here is an opportunity where you can make just a, a game-changing product. The impact comes along for free. And because it's a better product, you have an engine for change. And so like for us, a lot of what goes into the product and design, the brand, the website, that actually is kind of like our engine, right? Like we're sustainability nerds, but the reason people are, are, are you know, we can kind of recognize why they're going to buy our products is because they're better, not because they're necessarily sustainable. Let's go down that path then. So Ben gave us a little bit of a preview of it, but you've announced the first product line relatively recently, earlier this spring, I believe, which was the L1 trailer. What is the Lightship L1 trailer? It's the perfect travel trailer for the age of electrification, Cody, of course. Describe it. So pulls up next to me and uh, and what do I see? And you think spaceship. I don't know. What am I looking at? This is amazing. It's really cool. It's, it's about a 27-foot long family-oriented travel trailer that's about the size that you know a small family would, would often take on, on an RV vacation, like going to state parks or national parks, things like that. It's very sleek. You know, It has a lot of sort of modern automotive styling. On the outside, that combined with the company name Lightship is why we get a lot of spaceship. What was that article, Toby, the Motor Trend? Yeah, there was a lot of Star Wars references in that one. It's like a travel trailer, galaxy beyond its competitors or something like that. That's kind of what you see on the outside. And then the inside. First, it pulls up and it's collapsed. It collapses when it drives. So then when I'm ready to get into it, there's actually basically a lid that raises up that raises up the windows. It's not just the lid, it's the whole roof. It's funny because going down the road, you would not recognize that it is an RV for many reasons. And it's not the aesthetic design alone. It looks like a bullet shape. It's this long bullet that it gets pulled behind your truck. It's about the height of the truck. As it goes, it's a little, little bit wider than the truck, about the same height. You get to the campsite and there's sort of this presentational moment where it goes from this trailer that tows in a pretty small way to an enormous living space, which we call the transformation from the road mode to the camping mode. So the whole top half of the vehicle raises up about three feet. And it's sort of shocking when you see it. You're like, how did that just turn into that? And most of that is glass window. So it creates basically this panorama view that you get. Yeah, exactly. So the whole top half is a lot of transparent surfaces, windows all around it. And it, you really, you especially appreciate it from the inside because you walk in and because of the transforming nature, you get a really tall ceiling out of it. So, you know, it's about, about a seven and a half foot like, residential height ceiling, which people are not used to in a trailer because normally you get maybe six, three or six, four for, for the ceiling height. So it's, you get this feeling of spaciousness on the inside and then you are just surrounded by windows. And so when you're in a really nice natural environment, like a state forest or a mountaintop or something like that, you're just looking out over, over vistas, you know, of the natural setting that you just spent all this time getting to. Solar paneled roof, yeah? Yeah, the entire, so instead of having a bunch of cutouts and holes for air conditioners and things like that, the entire roof is dedicated to a seamless solar array. So you can get, the MCDA audience will especially appreciate this. It's about a two kilowatt array just on the fixed portion of the roof. And then there's actually a, there's a way to expand the array into the awnings as well. So in total, it's about a three kilowatt array. Most American homes only have maybe four or five kilowatts of solar on the roof so that no ground-based EV with an array that big. And it's great because it basically means that you have a source of replenishment for the battery. If effectively, the battery is big enough, of course, to buffer you between bad weather and things like that. But if you have any decent amount of sun, it's very likely that the solar input will keep up 
with your energy use as you're, as you're camping and even running the air conditioner and things like that. There's an interesting portion of the vehicle on the front. It's like a box that sits on the tongue of the vehicle. And what we did was, you know, we realized that normally the propane cans would go up on the very front of the vehicle there, but no fossil fuels, no propane to, to store there anymore. So instead, we both changed the architecture of and shifted the air conditioner out to the tongue. So it becomes a heat pump style, heating and cooling, all electric air conditioner. And the loud bits like the compressor, for instance, which you really don't want to be inside the cabin, you can shift out to the exterior. And so it's kind of like a mini split. For folks who have that at home, you know how quiet it is on the inside. You put all that loud stuff on the outside and then you just have an air recirculation system on the inside. So it's like whisper quiet, cooling air heating and all powered off of the battery. Your cooking service is a, is an induction stove? Yeah, exactly. Which it's great because it's, it's electric. It's very efficient. But one thing that we're learning that's actually especially cool about that in, in an RV setting is there's not that much counter space in an RV. It's a pretty small vehicle. And so that because induction cooktops stay relatively cool and integrate flush into the surface of the counter, now you have even more prep space than, than you're used to in a vehicle. Um, I think one thing that we talk about a lot that we think is really cool is that because this thing is effectively an electric vehicle, it is a it is like a little vacation home on wheels. And there, you know, there's a lot of consumer electronics built into it. We're having to build all of those three things at once. And so for technologies that are nascent and up and coming in residential use, for instance, like induction cooktops, like bi-directional heat pumps, I think it's very likely that for our customers, these will be some of the first times that they will have been exposed to heat pumps, induction cooktops, things like that. And as they get comfortable with them in their light ship, then when it comes time, like your furnace fails at home or you're renovating your kitchen and you're gonna, you're gonna replace your stovetop, if you already have a lot of comfort with those technologies, it's all the more likely that you're going to start to electrify your home with them as well. So it's kind of not just a gateway to truck electrification. It seeps into the home as well because it, it is a home. Thanks, Ben, for painting the picture of what it feels like. And I can only sit here and imagine I haven't been inside one, but uh, I've seen the pictures on the website and I've seen a couple other videos that you all have have shared on social media and other places. And it certainly looks very different from an Airstream trailer. It's pretty sleek looking, right? But this is like a whole new level of sleek presentation. Toby, talk a little bit more about the price point, kind of the target customer segmentation, and also just availability. Like, what is it going to look like as it rolls out and becomes available to people? Yeah, definitely. One thing I also just comment before I answer your question too, like on the design, like, you know, we appreciate it. We're something we're really proud of. And I think we will owe a lot of credit to our head of design, his name's Rob Williams, who was one of our very first hires. And I think this is something for Ben and I, as we started off on this journey, like it wasn't immediately obvious what an electric RV could be or that you, that design should be like a critical part of it. And, and I think Rob, this is a lot of his influence. He was the early creative force at Rivian and did a lot of the design for the R1T and the R1S. And so we really have them to thank for a lot of that. Yeah, on the, on the price point and customer and what that looks like and when this is available. So um, our starting price is right around 120 grand. It's expensive. And Ben and I, I think, are you know recognizing that. And if you look at kind of the overall market, you know, I'd say that the Lightship L1 is really targeted at, you know, what I'd call kind of the mainstream premium segment. So think like an Airstream. You know, that for us is a really awesome place to start, land and expand as a, as a startup would say, like there's a ton of volume that transacts there and there's an opportunity for us to really build our brand. But I think it's also important to say that like, why are we doing this? What are Ben and I about? Like we're designing a business for scale and for impact. Uh, you know, I think this is a little bit of Tesla DNA here, but the L1, I would say is our, our Tesla Roadster. This is our first product. 
and we're hyper-focused on driving the price down and getting to subsequent generations of the product, won't be surprised that they are called the L2 and the L3. We're not the most creative folks in the world. And, you know, ultimately, like we, you know, want to be the reason that the entire industry goes electric. There's absolutely no reason the industry needs to rely on fossil fuels. And frankly, the industry does need to go electric if we're going to see, you know, large penetration of electric vehicles in the truck segment, as we've talked about. That's kind of uh, where we're starting. And the L1 will be starting production at the end of next year and kind of ramping up from there. And on the customer point, I think this this is something that is really interesting and something that Ben and I are also really excited about. So... When we started, you know, we've been working on this for a little over two years, and we, I think, had this vision of bringing electrification to new demographics of people and also bringing new demographics of people into RVing. Like, what does that mean from like kind of a customer standpoint? What that means is we want to make the market bigger, right? We don't want to only be designing a product for the market sort of status quo as it exists today. At the same time, we see a bit of a problem in electrification as it exists today. Like there's a bit of a stereotype of like who drives a Tesla and where the where you'll find like Teslas and urban areas and coastal areas and liberal leaning areas. And I think that's sort of all well and good. But I think in order for electrification to really be successful, it needs to become mainstream. It needs it needs to go everywhere in our country. So then you, you turn back to us. I think we want to grow the pie in terms of who does RVing. So that means new people in the market, but we also want to build a product that appeal to the market as it exists today. Like we don't want our our only customers to be people who drive Teslas, you know, though Ben and I both, both drive Teslas and love Tesla. Like that would be a failing if that was all we appealed to. This sort of like started as a vision called this a couple of years ago. And one of the very first things Ben and I did, this is before we had any money, we had a lot of time is we went out and we talked to a ton of RVers and, you know, we talked to, to several dozen RVers. And from that, we kind of got this like early hypothesis of who our customers would be. And our number one customer demographic, we call and still call the family adventurer, you know, a, a family of, parent, you know, two parents and a kid or a kid and a dog or a couple kids. This was sort of a customer group that spanned a lot of these adopter groups that we're talking about, like both more traditional and sort of like more technology focused boat people. At least that was that was sort of like a early hypothesis, but this is very qualitative study. Later, you know, flash forward as we were leading up to our launch this spring, we did a much more in-depth study. We surveyed two thousand people, and out of that study, we wanted to validate our hypothesis. What was really cool, and I think something that we're really proud of, is it really showed that when you look at who was really excited about the light ship. This is actually pre-launch. We actually like revealed the L1 and like what it looked like. It was a kind of a risk because they're debating like, should we even do this? Because there could be a leak or something. But we're like, no, we really need to like understand if we have the product like right before we launch it. And what we were super excited to see was the broad appeal of the product was there. People across the board, I think it was like 80% of people said like the product was appealing or very appealing. But more importantly, you really saw that the customer groups were both the existing more traditional market and new entrants into the market, people who didn't necessarily have a lot of RV experience. And that has since borne out as we've gotten the product more out into the field, we've done more events, and we're constantly talking to customers. You have certainly people who are like, this is awesome. I'm going to tow up on my Cybertruck when the Cybertruck shows up. And one of Ben's favorite stories is the family he met in you know rural Arkansas who's going to put it behind their F-250 dually. And like 
that's all awesome. Like that is all good for us. And I think good for, for electrification, obviously good for our business. So we're excited about it. It's kind of obvious in retrospect too, because like if you don't have to worry about a bunch of fuel sources for your camping, that's great. You mentioned earlier too, Cody, where even if you're towing with a gas or diesel vehicle, which is still the vast majority of the incumbent fleets, tens of millions of gas and diesel trucks out there, those owners are not that psyched about getting eight miles a gallon when they're towing a normal trailer. So to be able to get back up to 20 or 25 miles a gallon, which is something that where the efficiency works both ways, necessary for an EV, but hugely complementary just from like a gas savings standpoint and ultimately a pocketbook standpoint for people who have gone RVing all their lives. That's really cool. I mean, it's interesting to think of it as you could call it an RV tow trailer that's electric, or you could call it gas mileage booster for your existing truck that you can also sleep in. Yeah. So another really interesting element of it, which has dawned on us more over time, is that charging infrastructure is sort of one of the big frontiers. And it's one of the big talking points as the electrification of the car happens in America. It's the charging infrastructure adequate to meet the need as we get millions of these things on the road. And I remember talking to a guy who has a, has a contracting business and, and you know drives big diesel trucks in Minnesota. And we were talking about, you know, is range anxiety going to be a thing with a trailer like this? He was like, no, not a problem. And it's actually twofold. One, because I know I can count on my truck to get me the distance if I need to, even if the range assist runs out. And two, most of the RV campgrounds that I go to have effectively destination charging built in to the experience because they all have high power plugs to run big motor coaches and things like that. And so that same 240 volt plug you can use to charge your light ship overnight and then keep going. It's interesting. I've heard the same argument to be made around the electrification of recreational boating too, which is that docks already have all these electric plugs, you know, on them. We haven't talked about the battery at all, getting into range anxiety and all that sort of stuff. The battery side of your story is super important. Before we, and not that range anxiety relates to your tow trailer, but is what I think of when I think of range anxiety, I think of battery. Before we do, one thing I wanted to hit on is you mentioned you'll be manufacturing and starting to deliver at the end of 2024. Are you all doing all the manufacturing in Colorado, in the U.S.? Is that the plan? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's really important for us. If you look at the sort of like global industry, like it is really focused on North America and the United States. So I think for us, focusing on that market and manufacturing. Made in the USA is, is an important thing to be able to say. Made in the USA, I think is important. And honestly, it's just practical. It's 27 foot, 7,500 pound vehicle. That's not something that is going to make a lot of sense to build overseas and then ship here. It doesn't fit in a shipping container. It does not fit in a shipping container. <laughs> So yeah, we just announced our first pilot production facility, um, and that'll be in Broomfield, Colorado. And moving into the battery, describe what is on board with the L1. Honestly, Cody, this is kind of the secret of building this company in the 2020s, is that you don't, the batteries that we need to make this product exist, and they exist because of the automotive industry and the sort of broader movement that has happened, and ultimately probably tens or hundreds of billions of dollars that the auto industry has spent developing really great, high-quality, low-cost EV components. And so if you look at something like the battery, if we were for our first product, Toby and I have both worked in batteries sort of from different angles. If we were to, for our first product as a startup, take on doing a great, high-quality, low-cost, high-voltage automotive EV battery from scratch, that alone is a probably multi-hundred million dollar endeavor just for us to build that. And so the beauty is that there is now a supply base of EV components that are out there from the auto industry. There are you know, multiple suppliers of great high quality sort of rectilinear high voltage auto batteries of a standard chemistry 
at you know a lithium ion chemistry and can fit between the frame rails of a trailer like this. And so we can go to that supply base and get what we need. And that applies to the battery in terms of you know its cost and performance, and it applies to a number of the other components in the vehicle too. Effectively, the guts of this thing are a bunch of EV automotive components integrated together with a home solar system and then controls a custom in-house developed control system to manage the energy so that you can feed power in a seamless way to all of your all of your camping appliances, your cooking and heating and things like that and have a seamless experience out of it. It's a sizable battery, right? Is what is it, 80 kilowatt hour battery? Is that right? It is a big boy. It's an 80 kilowatt hour battery. Which is significantly larger than a power wall, if I if I understand correctly. It's like six of them. Yeah, if you stacked up six Tesla power walls, you would get this much energy. That, by the way, is... And just for comparison, like, do you know for like the, I, mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but for like for the Ford F-150 Lightning or the Cybertruck, what's roughly the size of battery that are going into those type of vehicles? Well, it's funny because they have huge batteries too. Theirs are in fact even larger than this one. They're like 130 kilowatt hour battery. Because they have to drive the thing down the road. Totally. This is part of what's so great is that because the vehicle is efficient enough, you can put a relatively small EV battery on board. So our battery is the same size as would be in something like a long range Model 3. It's, it's, a, it's, it's about that size. It is more than enough energy for both powering your camping loads. Actually, it turns out it can even be used to power your home as well. You know, if you, if you think about the life of an RV, most RVs just sit there for 48 or 49 weeks out of the year. We had a community, I was, you're getting to it. We had a community question through our MCJ member Slack from Ryan Ocker, who said, you know, hey, RVs have a relatively low utilization rate. So you've got this big battery on it. Is there something you can do at home to use it? Yes, Ryan. Toby, you should jump into it. That's one of the big ideas of the company as it relates to the product is how do we, really the product and beyond, is how do we turn an asset that is a very low utilized asset. RVs probably get used less than 5% of the year into one that is very high utilization. And there are multiple ways to do that. You can sort of get at it through the business model. You can also get at it through fundamentally what the product is, which is to say an energy asset. So as it sits at your home and it has three kilowatts of solar in the roof and six Tesla power walls in the floor, it's a home solar system. It's a very capable, large home solar system that you sort of just got as a part of getting an RV and you were used to back up your home when the grid goes down, you can daily charge your daily driver EV off of it. There's sort of no limit to how you can use it as an energy tool. Yeah, that's right. You've got the, the solar array on the top. You all of a sudden now get six Tesla power walls and a, what did you say, two to three kilowatt solar s- sitting there in your in your driveway. Yeah. And one thing that's so cool about it is that we talk a lot about EVs being used as an energy asset for your house too. There's vehicle to grid or vehicle to home or topics that come up a lot. Now, one of the challenges there is you don't know exactly when your EV is going to be home. Like, is it going to be home when you need it to power your home or is somebody out doing an errand and and the grid goes down? In the case of an RV, you can almost guarantee that if your RV is home, you are home too. And so you'll be able to use it to keep the lights on. What needs to happen for a home to be able to power itself off of that? That's a local regulatory challenge, I guess, more than anything. Is that right? Yeah, think of it a bit like a backup generator. If you have a backup power source, then you can switch off of the grid and over to, in this case, your light chip to power the home. There's additional development complexity that's involved in then grid connecting the light chip as well. So vehicle to home is an issue. Vehicle to grid becomes a can of worms a little bit. 
Yeah, it's more challenging. The lucky thing is that it's on the path for us. And it turns out as we've actually gone kind of deeper with customers and gone through how they would use it or where they would need it to use this as a home solar system. Much of the, the upfront need is about energy security and reducing your energy bill by charging your EV every day. There's definitely additional value in the long term around vehicle to grid, but it's not an absolute upfront necessity is what we're finding. And that kind of streamlines our path to market. I don't see any of that story today in like your website, your marketing materials. This is stuff that right now you're just leading with, hey, it's a good product, looks like. I, I presume over time that will be part of the story you tell. Indeed. I think you point out one of the major areas that we need to keep working on as we build the brand. We loosely call this chapter two. And we haven't we haven't put a lot of it on on our website. And that will be forthcoming. I mean, I mean maybe to give a little preview, like Ben has said a little bit of it, but as we got started out, you know, we started working on the problem of electrification. And I think what we realized is in the RV market, problem one is electrification. Problem two is utilization. And utilization is a really interesting problem in this market. And Ben just sort of touched on one of the big ideas and one of the opportunities that comes from the utilization problem. But there are others. And this relates back to what I described as our vision before in, in terms of bringing you know, new demographics of people into RVing and sort of like, what does that mean or what needs to happen? And one of the things that needs to happen is we need to think of ways to get people in a light ship that don't necessarily involve them purchasing a light ship. And maybe they don't have the means to purchase a light ship. Maybe they just don't want to purchase a light ship. Maybe they don't like have the space in their driveway. But fortunately, there's this utilization problem, right? People buy, are, you know, already half a million RVs are sold every year, and then they're used 5% of the time. So there's a massive amount of RVs at any given time to be used. And so for us, there's really cool things to do with that. Like either plug in your house and use it anytime the sun is shining. Actually, with the battery, it doesn't even need to be shining. Or give your RV back to Lightship and let us use it to get more people into the product who maybe just want to take it out for a weekend. So I think that's something you'll see more and more information from us as we enter chapter two of the business. We're kind of brimming with excitement, and we really want to tell you all about it, putting the finishing touches on it. I don't want you to say anything you're not ready to say yet, but I guess it sounds like some degree of sort of shared usage model potentially being considered. Indeed. That's appropriate. Yeah. Super cool. And then I guess the, the last question that we had that came in through the community was from Weldon Kennedy. You may be familiar with him. He's building a home electrification company as well, all around induction stoves and whatnot. He asked if you could just share anything about the life cycle emissions analysis work that you've done to look at the embedded emissions of the vehicle itself relative to, I guess, payback period on those emissions as, as people use it. It's a really good topic. And this is something that we think about quite a bit, too. It's and honestly, I think this applies to like all electric vehicles. And, you know, on the one hand, you think about like the impact that is created by not using fossil fuel. And on the other hand, you look at the impact that is created in all the embedded emissions of all the materials that are going into it. And for us, the most important thing I think to say here and the way in, in which we, we are attacking this problem is really focused on another company value, which we say is build to last. And what does that mean? So you can use sustainable materials in your design and that's awesome. And we're doing that. But actually, the bigger opportunity when it comes to RVs, if you look at your typical RVs, there's sort of like a dirty secret in the industry that they are designed to fail. And you talk to different people, and this is, this is like a nugget we got from a former RV executive. And he said that your average RV 
is designed to be used 50 times and then it ends up in a landfill, which is insane <laughs> to think of that. So for us, part of our approach and part of the you know Tesla background, we are bringing an automotive approach to developing an RV. And one of the big things there is designing durability. So while a traditional RV may be designed to only be used for a few years and it's very typical for people to sell it and upgrade their RV, we are going to be focused on designing an RV that is something you pass down to your kids. It is a generational item. You know, getting back to the question, like that for us, you know, in addition to replacing the fossil fuels is how we really think about, you know, mitigating like the full life cycle emissions of the product. And a lot of it will probably, again, come down to how much utilization the buyer is able to get out of it. Again, for all the ways we talked about, even when they're not sleeping in it, you know, how much is it powering their house or powering the grid or serving as a backup all which reduces its overall time to pay back on its life cycle embedded emissions. Yeah, exactly. It's getting rid of the fossil fuels that reduces the emissions, getting rid of the fossil fuels and making it built to last. Now, you know, your emissions per use are great. Now increasing your utilization from 5% to 50%. Now your emissions per lifetime, you know, number of uses is like, is actually like diminishing the fractional amount of like what it started with. We think I'm talking a lot, too, about some of the indirect or the ripple effects that happen here, too. First and foremost, thinking about ourselves as a, as a key enabler of the electrification of the pickup truck. If those are going to sell, how do people need to want them? For people to want them, they need to be able to use them as it fits into their, their lifestyle today. So that's sort of a big shift that we see ourselves as an enabler for. And I, I think even zooming out further, Toby and I talk sometimes about just where can we fit into the travel landscape and in particular the sustainable travel landscape because for us as everyday consumers so much of our impact as it relates to travel is us getting on a plane and staying in a hotel somewhere and there's a lot of emissions associated with that so when you think about doing more regional and nature-based trips in a vehicle that it itself and the truck that's pulling it it can run sustainably that's a great alternative and it's, it's a low emissions alternative too to how a lot of people travel today I so appreciate you guys taking the time to come on here and share all about what you're building and what you may even be thinking about building in the future. You know, with that, I want to say thanks for joining us today. We didn't even mention MCJ Collective that we're proud to be two-time investors in what you're building. Certainly want to disclose that and thank you for that. I guess maybe we didn't hit on that is just how you finance the business so far. If you want to take 30 seconds to, to share that and then we'll, we'll wrap it up and let people... Uh, get back to this. And maybe they're even listening to this episode in their electric vehicle or in their gas vehicle, pulling a uh, a trailer and anticipating what the future may hold for them. Is that your way of saying, Cody, that you only have given us the softball questions and had you not been an investor, you'd, you'd really hit us hard? <laughs> it's not lost on us the kind of insanity that we are a venture-backed RV company, which is, I think, the first of its kind. And I think we've been really lucky to have the support of really awesome investors such as yourselves and other kind of our major investors are Obvious Ventures, who led our seed round, Prelude Ventures, who led our Series A, uh, and Congruent Ventures has participated in all of our rounds, and, and they've all been really awesome. And I think what's really exciting for them is in the world of climate, I think generally, I think consumer-facing climate is a little bit rarer, but I think also just like looking at a completely new category of vehicles and a completely new opportunity to bring electrification to new demographics of people like we talked about is something that has overcome the hump of investing in a you know venture-backed RV company. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. And and I think there certainly will be more fundraising for us um, as we bring the product to market. So stay tuned. 
All right. Well, well, Toby and Ben, thanks for your time today. Super appreciate getting a chance to chat and for you to share everything that you're working on with us. Yeah. Thanks, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.